Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Up North Prevention Podcast. Here you will find cutting edge information related to substance use issues through interviews, educational content, and helpful resources. For more information, please visit us at www.upnorthprevention.org. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Today we have uh, Adam Devaney. He is a, a clinical, licensed clinical social worker with Life's Work Clinic here in Kalkaska. And he's going to talk to us about his clinic, medications for opioid use disorder, and the misconceptions related to substance use disorder and medications for opioid use disorder. Take it away, Adam. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, and <clears throat> so, so Life's Work Clinic, right, is uh, was the brainchild of my wife and I uh, after experience working at uh, two other clinics uh, previously for several years uh, as employees. And when those when those uh, ended, then uh, and we we opened Life's Work Clinic. It was the natural result of that, and and so it kind of happened organically. You know, my 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 wife and I were working uh, with a doctor who was doing uh, uh, pain management. And uh, through that experience, actually, we figured out that the real uh, need in the world was for opioid addiction management. And so it was sort of an organic transition uh, that way. Lacework Clinic uh, does, does three things. Uh, we do uh, medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorders. So we use drugs like Suboxone, Zubzol, uh, Subutex for pregnant women, um, to manage the, uh, uh, the physical part of uh, the, uh, the physical dependency on opioids. Then the behavioral health component comes in. The behavioral health component is there to uh, address the behavioral issues uh, and the disruptive nature of, uh, of the lifestyle, of the behavioral patterns, of the struggles with anxiety, depression, trauma, things like that that really feed into uh, addiction, uh, whether it's for opioids or other drugs. Although we do find that, um, you know, the, the holy trinity, as I call it, uh, predisposition to opioid use uh, disorder or developing opioid addiction, you know, of course is, you know, anxiety, depression, trauma, some combination of all three, and then some, some extra ones. Uh, so, and then the third thing that Life's Work Clinic does is we're actually working with our supervising physician right now to bring him on uh, to do uh, psychiatric work as well. Because one of the things that's really in, in need in our area, in the Kalkaska area, in the sort of 50 miles that surround that, um, you've got Traverse City, you've got Petoskey, there's some, some psychiatrists in each of those, but you've got this kind of no man's land from uh, Traverse City over through Kalkaska, over to Grayling and beyond that, down to areas like Houghton Lake, Roscommon, um, even Cadillac would pull a lot of people from there. Um, since there's really no, we know that there's no, almost no MAT or medication assisted treatment in those, in those, in that area I just described. But even more so, and I think more critically, there's a lack of psychiatric services in that area. A lot of primary care physicians are, are offering 
psychiatric services uh, to their to their patients, and that's fantastic. If you have an MD or a DO, you can prescribe those drugs. Um, and um, but at the same time, uh, having some uh, someone that really specializes in that and has that experience in that really, I feel, uh, is going to be a huge benefit to this area because over the course of the last. 15 months, 16 months, right? We've gone through some pretty dramatic changes in our society. Um, as we know, opioid uh, overdose deaths are have skyrocketed over that time. It's really some grim figures that I, I don't even need to express to anybody. It's, it's pretty horrible. Um, but at the same time, you have, um, uh, like we spoke to an ER doc uh, about two months ago who said that one out of every three people that are coming into the ER are coming in for panic attacks. That's one out of every three, that's 30% of people that are going to the ER are having panic attacks. Why is that? Well, our, kind of our whole world changed. Our whole world collapsed in many, many ways. People are isolated, people are lonely, people are fearful. Um, because of that, what's happened is there's a huge demand for uh, behavioral health and psychiatric services. Uh, more so than ever, and at a time when services are not expanding, when they're actually contracting. Um, but at the same time, there's been a very innovative um, trend towards the use of, of telehealth. So uh, I would say that probably 75% or more of my clients that I see for counseling are done um, like this on, on, on their phone in the comfort of their own home. They don't need to uh, leave their house. And, um, and, and so also many payers, uh, many insurance companies have, have adapted uh, this to this uh, reality. And uh, so there's, you know, there's kind of like on par our payments for providers, which is really nice, which encourages that. So our psychiatric services are gonna reach to other people just like uh, in outside of our area, just like our behavioral health can, and just like our MAT can. We have people from, you know, from Kalkaska in our medication assist treatment program. We have people in the UP in our medication assisted treatment program. So um, really branching out and reaching out to where the people are. And right now they're in their homes. Right now they're not really going out. So that's uh, kind of uh, the background of the backbone of what Life's Work Clinic is. And we're really just trying to meet a need in our area uh, and very, very specific and important in uh, hopefully, and I believe, uh, life-saving ways. Uh, now, what, what um, uh, you were talking about, uh, what some of the myths might be of, uh, of addiction, right? And I've kind of already touched on a little bit of the um, predisposition factors for addiction, um, anxiety, depression, trauma, those are the big ones, right? And, you know, when I was really young, when I was a young psychology student, I was like 20, I don't know, 21, 22 years old, I met this, uh, I met this clinical social worker, and he, he told me, he said, he says, you know, he says, my practice, I just figure sick people use drugs. And I was like, well, that's interesting. He's like, when you're sick, you use drugs, right? He's like, when you got an illness, you go to the doctor, they give you drugs, you get better, right? So, he said, when I, when I find someone with um, uh, a depressant addiction, so they're addicted to alcohol, they're addicted to um, opioids, right? He says, I always look for an anxiety disorder because they're medicating in the opposite direction that they're suffering. 
So if someone's got really bad anxiety, they're going to drink to try to, 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 to stuff down that anxiety. They're going to take a pill. Uh, they're going to shoot heroin and do something to go in the opposite direction to quell that anxiety. He says, if I find someone that's using, say, cocaine, right, or speed, um, uh, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for some sort of a depressive disorder. Okay, because again, they're feeling already low and they want to go in the opposite direction. And I thought, you know, I chewed on that for a long time and I didn't really get into, you know, clinical social work until much later in my in my schooling. Um, but then, you know, I just keep going back to that conversation that I had with that guy where like he was spot on, like he just nailed it. Like people are self medicating people are self-medicating with drugs people are self-medicating with food people are self-medicating with behaviors uh, which really creates an expansive definition of, of the, the potential for addiction which is that uh, um, you know is your adaptation becoming uh, disruptive to your life because that's the that's the real definition if we look at the 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 textbook definition of addiction it really is not an issue until it's beginning to negatively affect someone's life. And at that point, you've got a, a clinical uh, um, diagnosis. So, so when, uh, when people, uh, you know, our, our, our approach really is to sort of bust these myths, these myths that there's something wrong with the person, that there's something that is, um, that it's a moral failing, that it is a, um, you know, something beyond the fact that human beings are just trying to find balance in their life. You know, um, I just, uh, you know, sometimes it's about getting people on drugs. Sometimes it's about getting people off drugs, <laughs> right? Sometimes you can get people off drugs by getting them on other drugs. You know, it, it's, there's a balance to be had there. Uh, for example, I have a guy, uh, uh, he's not in our addiction program, right? He came to me, um, 39 years old, um, and he's really struggling with um, kind of like what, what kind of presents like a sensory disorder. Like he's just really, really, he has like a quick startle re uh, response. Um, he has to have earphones in when he does his work or, or goes into any kind of store or anything like that because it's just too overwhelming for him. Um, and uh, what I got when I was talking to him was that he used to be treated for adult ADHD. About six years ago, when he started having kids, he thought, well, I don't want to be on any of these drugs. I'll just go off these drugs. Right. So we went off the Adderall. Well, what ended up happening was he had these classic symptoms of, um, you know, especially the startle response. Like if he's really actually like finally focused on something and someone comes up and taps him on the shoulder, and he's just like, <gasps> you know, um, not being able to walk into stores. Um, like grocery stores, things like that, because let's face it, if you have a adult ADHD and there's like a million stimuli in, in a store, right? He uh, was completely overwhelmed. So of course, you know, as a, as a, as a behavioral therapist, you know, my first work is, you know, I, I teach him how to ground, I teach him how to meditate, I teach him how to um, calm and center himself. Right. And when those techniques didn't work, we started discussing whether or not it might be relevant for him to to attempt to go back on on the uh, extended release Adderall. Well, a couple of weeks ago, he uh, uh, came in and he's uh, had talked to his primary care physician about uh, getting back on the extended release Adderall. And 
about 70 to 80% of his symptomology went away like that. Uh, um, now, uh, <clears throat> it's a controlled substance. Okay. So you do have to, you know, be concerned about those things. I mean, there is potential for abuse and in, in anything like this. Um, so, you know, you do your due diligence, you know, you run a max report regularly, you do, you know, you check on, in, on people, but in this particular case, uh, you know, I've met with him again yesterday um, and he's just about got it all managed and he probably needs to go. We figured yesterday he probably needs to go from a 20 milligram extended release to a 25 milligram extended release. And that's going to work really, really well for him. So sometimes you get people on drugs. Sometimes you get people off drugs. <laughs> sometimes you get people on drugs to get off drugs. <laughs> and this is where, this is where our philosophy really um, varies quite a bit from the traditional abstinence model. Um, we understand and accept that, that, that when people are ill, they, they use pharmaceuticals to help with that illness, whether that's emotional, whether that's physical, that connecting the per person with the right practitioner that can allow them to find that balance through that is just as good as getting somebody off of all the, the drug of abuse and helping them find balance that way as well. And that's some of the myths. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's a, a lot of stigma towards um, people using medications to help themselves um, emotionally. And, but yet there's not stigma for people, you know, taking medications for diabetes. You know, it's, it's, I don't know. That's, that's a fascinating thing that you just said, actually. And that's a conversation I have with a lot of our opioid addiction patients. And, um, I uh, actually have on our website, lifesworkclinic.com, there's a, a blog and uh, one of my uh, papers that I wrote on there was, um, you know, questions and answers on, on uh, buprenorphine therapy. And, and one of the first questions is, well, aren't you just, aren't you just, you know, substituting one drug for another? That's a, like a common thing. We actually hear it a lot from, uh, from family members of people who come to see us. And um, the, the, the answer to that question is pretty simple. Well, yeah, we are, okay? One has the potential for abuse. One does not have the potential for abuse. One uh, just, uh, destroys a person's life, potentially. Another uh, uh, saves a person's life, potentially. So, and, and the conversation I have uh, with my patients so that they understand this is when they, when they get on this drug, it's a lot like someone managing their type two diabetes. If somebody, and this is my example, if somebody um, uh, eats McDonald's every day for 20 years, right? Sometimes twice, okay? And they go to the, they're, you know, they're a hundred pounds overweight. Um, they go to their doctor and they're like, man, I just don't feel right. You know, my mood is terrible. I just feel exhausted all the time. And so the doctor runs some tests and it turns out that the person's blood sugar is 400. Doctor says, look, bottom line, you've developed type two diabetes. You broke your pancreas, okay? So the doctor says, this is what we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna get you on metformin. We're gonna get you on insulin. Uh, I want you to stop eating McDonald's and I want you to do a little bit of exercise. We'll start walking around the, the, the block a few times. Then we'll, you know, up the exercise, et cetera. We can, we can, we can take care of this. Okay. So the patient comes back in a couple of months later 
for a follow-up. Uh, blood sugar is down to 200. Um, they lost like 10 pounds. Um, they're doing great. Doctors like fantastic. We'll continue the metformin and, uh, and the insulin continue to, uh, you know, avoid McDonald's and, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, increase your exercise. Okay. Fantastic. Two, two months later, they come in blood sugar is 350 again they smell like the mcdonald's they had on the way there uh clearly what they've done is relapsed right um and the doctor says okay um so this is what we're going to do we're just going to start back at the basics here we're going to get you keep you on the metformin we're going to keep you on the insulin we're going to uh, you're going to stop eating mcdonald's and you're going to start exercising again right because what ended up happening i'm not sure i just lost your wait did I lose you? Nope. Okay. So, okay. All right. Just lost the video. That's fine. Um, and so uh, <clears throat> what, what happened with the person with type 2 diabetes is they literally, through a series of long-term lifestyle choices, basically broke their pancreas. Okay. Their pancreas cannot to no longer keep up with the blood sugar. There's fat in the blood and they just can't, the pancreas is just broken. So you need the metformin, you need the insulin, right? You can manage it, you can get that down to 200, right? But you're still, you, you know, you stop eating McDonald's, you start exercising, that's fantastic. But the bottom line is actually damage a part of your body that's gonna take some medication to treat that. For some reason, and I, I, I don't advocate for, for stigma on that, but we don't put any stigma on that, okay? We're just like, oh, person got type two diabetes and it's being managed, right? So what happens with, let's say, opioid uh, addiction, what happens is every time that a person takes opioids, right, um, the potential is there for the next time that the cell reproduces, for that cell to reproduce even more of the, uh, the receptors, for the opioid receptors. And um, so every, you know, over time, you know, you get a lot more of those receptors, you build a tolerance to the drug, you become physically dependent on the drug, you need more and more. Uh, to get the same to to get the same effect, um, what's happened by the time that they come to us and they say, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years, um, you know, I've been injecting uh, fentanyl, you know, five six times a day. Um, what happens is that they, when they don't have that, their cells are screaming, right, uh, for that drug. And uh, in those receptors, what's fascinating about those receptors is that if there's no other opioid present. Those set of seven different types of receptors are actually busy regulating your hormones and your neurotransmitters. And that's why people feel so terrible when they go without it. When they go into withdrawal and their hormones and their, their neurotransmitters get out of balance, it's just horrible. And we can see that in all the effects of the, uh, you know, we just tick off the effects one by one on the clinical opioid withdrawal scale, and it's not pretty. So when someone comes to us and they say, well, is, is this going to fix me? Well, no. What, what buprenorphine is going to do actually is it's a partial opioid instead of a, a full opioid with that extra part that inspires the, the, the body to produce more and more and more and more and more receptors. It's a partial opioid. So it goes in there and it, it just manages the withdrawal. It just occupies all those receptors and the person you know, fixes it and forgets about it for a 24 hour period. Uh, and then of course there's no, you know, most of the drugs we use have naloxone in them. So the naloxone slowly goes in there and fills all the others, which then uh, it acts as a blocker. And then of course it, uh, um, uh, it, it helps to prevent overdoses if somebody does relapse. 
So a really fantastic, uh, fantastic drug. What's fascinating to me is when someone will go on a buprenorphine for a few months and then they just decide that they don't need the program anymore and they just quit, right? And then they inevitably they call us up and they're like, you didn't tell me there was going to be withdrawal from this stuff. Okay, let's start at the beginning here, right? You came to us with a raging opioid addiction, right? We told you we were going to manage that. When you stopped taking the drug that we were using to manage it, right? You, you went right back to the level of, of physical dependency and withdrawal that you were going to go through before you, before you came to us. It's the same thing with the, the person who um, has the damaged pancreas because they develop type 2 diabetes from eating McDonald's every day. You know, if they don't take their metformin, their insulin, they're still going to have a 400 blood sugar pretty much like as a given because they simply can't process that. So um, we manage that. But the, the key component is this. It's the behavioral health care. It's the fact that you see a counselor sometimes weekly, biweekly, or monthly, so that you always have someone to talk to. You always have someone to help you work through the anxiety, the trauma, the, the depression. You always have somebody to contact so that you can work with that person to address the mental health issues, which were really driving the need to use something powerful as an opioid uh, to suppress those, those tendencies in your emotional health. And so um, that for us is the key. Like I, I tell people that's like 75% of it. Like the drug is like maybe 25% of it, works really great, it's fantastic. But the, the rubber beats the road when you start getting into the mental health aspect of it and you really start connecting with your counselor and you really show up and you really show up to do the work. That makes all the difference. Right, and they can't, if they were not to take that, that medication and they were just to go into counseling, because of the way that they feel, it would be hard for them to focus on the counseling part of it until they feel better. Right? And that's the challenge. That's the particular challenge of, and I'm not bashing abstinence-only programs, okay? I've known many people that they've helped. They don't work very well for opioid uh, use disorders. They have about a 6% success rate on that, okay? Alcohol, uh, gambling, sex, things like that. Those are, you know, Abstinence programs work very, very well in getting to the core of those issues and really helping to heal. With opioids, if you go through a seven-day detox program and you do a 21-day uh, stay in, a res in an abstinence-only residential program, you um, are still in subacute withdrawal by the time you get out of there. So what's the first thing you do? You call up your guy and you get a fix. And then you enter into the really, really, really dangerous zone, which is the three biggest risk factors for fatal overdose upon relapse, which is completion of a detox program, completion of a residential program, completion of a short stint in jail. Because your tolerance dropped and you're like, well, I'll just start out at somewhere near you know, where I was before. And then that's where you see a lot of the, uh, the really sad unfortunate, you know, fatal overdoses upon relapse because, you know, they, they successfully completed, you know, some sort of program that our society really encourages um, and that does work for some drugs, but for opioid use, not, not as well. Yeah, big question. How much are they getting out of, if they were to come into you and just want counseling and not have that medication, how much are they actually getting out of the counseling when 
they can't focus, they don't feel good, you know, it would take quite a while and, they, and more than likely they're not going to be able to, to make that. They're not going to be able to, to focus. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's where, that's where medication is appropriate, right? It's not appropriate to tell the type two diabetic, just go out there and diet and exercise, change your diet and exercise without giving them the support of metformin and insulin. Um, so, you know, it's, we, that's where the judgment, the stigma of medication assisted treatment for us just falls away. It's just useless. It works. If a person works the program and shows up and they're, and they're ready to do the work, it really, uh, really, really works. So you got about, with abstinence programs, you got about a 6% success rate. Um, and with uh, medication assisted treatment, if you stick with it for a few years, you have, actually have up to about a 60% success rate, which is a 10, tenfold improvement. And, and that now you're, you know, now you're really standing the chance of, of saving someone's life. And not that abstinence programs don't work. Sometimes they do. Okay, I have a builder uh, that I'm working with right now on a remodel. And six years ago, um, he went into into rehab, and you know he was using heroin at the time. Six years ago, he went into rehab. It totally worked for him. He never did it again, and he's got a, a successful uh, uh, business and a family now, and he's really doing well. So for some people, it does work. For a lot of people, it doesn't work. So we're there for the people that say, "Hey, look, I tried." Uh, residential program a couple of times it really didn't work for me it's time to try something different and i've heard that the misuse of these types of medications aren't any higher than the misuse of any other prescription medications you do run the risk you know if you prescribe someone you know instant release adderall that they crush it up and snort it right uh you do run the risk of uh you know people overusing their uh, suboxone, you do run the risk of uh, uh, people diverting, you know, their suboxone, very few people, very few people come to our program who haven't, you know, tried suboxone on the street beforehand. Um, so we are aware of that. And we do have some mitigation policies and some diversion control policies in place. There's very few things that will get a person kicked out of our program, diversion being one of them. Okay. Uh, the other is, you know, being completely belligerent and obnoxious in our clinic or by phone. Other than that, we're pretty accepting of people. Uh, we understand, unfortunately, relapse is part of the process. And I think by um, busting the stigma and just eliminating the stigma and the judgment entirely and really approaching people with a level of neutrality and acceptance for what's going on with them, what we find is that when people fall out of the program, they do typically call us back up and get back in. And that says something about the approach. There's no, if, if you had judgment, if you had stigma at that point, um, you know, uh, people wouldn't feel comfortable coming back. And I think that that's where a lot of practitioners, um, you know, can kind of do some harm. If, if, if someone feels like there was judgment or stigma in the program, they're, they're not as likely to go back to that program. So we have a, um a huge increase of meth use in our area. Um, and a lot of these people are also on opioids. Can you say something about those issues? Sure. So uh, meth is a really fascinating animal. And I've got about three minutes left before I got to go uh, to a, a client. But meth is an interesting animal. 
methamphetamine is chemically similar to molecularly similar to amphetamine, which is Adderall, which is your common ADHD medication. So there's a certain percentage of people who use meth that are literally self-medicating, just like that, that other guy said to me before that. So I would add to what he said all those years ago and say, if someone comes to me and they're, they're using methamphetamines, the first thing I'm going to assess for is adult ADHD. So it, you know, uh, my, my clinical experience tends to be that it's about 50 to 60% of the people that are using meth are really kind of feel normal when they do it because they're, they should really should be on some sort of uh, an Adderall or a Ritalin or, or something like that. Um, <clears throat> so there's that aspect of it. There's another, you know, 40 or 50% of people who use meth because it, they really get, um, you know, they're, it's, it's a stimulant, right? So again, they're depressed. Um, they really want to feel high. They really want to feel, um, you know, stimulated. Um, and so methamphetamine provides that. Unfortunately, it's a very dirty drug. Unfortunately, it's a very deadly drug. Um, uh, but, uh, and unfortunately, it's a very inexpensive drug. So those things are, are, are difficult to overcome. Um, typically, when people are also using meth and they're in our program, they, those are the people who don't typically last very long in the program because uh, is this, this concept called what I call priming, right? Like if you're constantly using a mood enhancing drug, um, even though you're in a program, right? You're kind of priming yourself. It's sort of like every time that I quit coffee and I would just drink decaf right? It was kind of like I was priming myself, you know, and like, you know, then I would start putting a little bit of caffeinated in there. And then before you know it, I'm up to three cups of coffee again, you know, full flavor. So there's this, a little bit of priming that goes into, into that. So we have not seen as much success with patients who are, who are using both meth and are opioid addicted um, in our program. Um, some people have stopped using meth entirely once they got into our program, but again, there's that, it's a little bit of priming that goes on, um, that, and, and meth is a little bit more ins in insidious like that. I'm not, not really sure. We haven't really cracked that code yet. Um, uh, but I think that if people were serious about recovery, they could get on an extended release Adderall or something like that under a, uh, um, under the, a prescriber's supervision. And, 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 you know, I think about half of the people would probably do pretty well on that but I'm probably 30 years ahead of my time on that. <laughs> Does anybody else have any quick questions for him? No, I'm glad you brought that up, Suzanne, because that's what I was wondering about, you know, what's the promising outlook for meth addiction? It's a tough one. There's, there's no replacement therapy for that, um, except for ADHD uh, medications and, and supervision in that way. So it's a promising thing, but it's also something that's not FDA approved. It's not something that insurance is going to cover. Um, so there are, as I said, I'm probably 30 years ahead of my time on that. Right. There was a combination to what, what was it, Vivitrol and um, Wellbutrin? Yes, exactly. I'm very, that, that I thought was very promising. Interesting. Interesting. If Vivitrol... Uh, it's, it's very, it's, uh, it's, it's really a broad spectrum, uh, uh, drug approach, therapy approach, um, you know, works for alcoholism, uh, works for opioid addiction. Um, and I, and, and so what, what 
um, you know, Vivitrol does is, is it, uh, it blocks part of that pleasure response that people get when they do drugs. And it works for meth as well, Glenda? I haven't heard that, but it would make sense. Okay. That's what I read on. And, you know, Wellbutrin works in the same way. Um, you know, Wellbutrin is the drug that they use to prescribe to help you quit smoking. So it blocks some kind of receptors yeah, it, too. So. It increases dopamine a little bit. Yes, yeah. it's the dopamine response. If you can block the dopamine response in a person, then whatever drug they're using becomes less and less attractive over time. Right. Well, thanks. Can you have anything to ask Molly? Well, it sounds like you have to go see a client. I don't want to hold you back. <laughs> go ahead. I, really, I really appreciate everything that you're saying. The only one thing that does come to my mind is... Um, there have been many concerns expressed to me. I work in prevention um, with Suzanne and there's been concerns expressed to me related to the diversion of, of these, you know, of Suboxone and things of that nature. And so I'm just curious, I mean, you already kind of touched on that, but I think that is something that people are resistant to as a result of, of that potential diversion. And so I'm just, I'm curious, I guess, what your if you want to expand on that at all. Sure. So one of the things that we do is a random pill counts. So we'll just call, and nowadays it's really fantastically easy because of all the virtual stuff. I can literally call somebody up and have them go like this with their strips, right? Or I can have them, you know, uh, you know, quick uh, send a picture, you know, via text or something like that, or have them go to the pharmacy, do that. Um, and, and so, you know, pill counts are a really useful tool in that. And we do the pill counts literally at every appointment. So we like to think that we're on top of the, the diversion. We definitely have a lot of different uh, aspects to our diversion control policies, but, um, but there's no perfect answer for that. Mm -hmm. All I can say is I've got um, two people in our program, actually three, four, half a dozen people in our program right now that were paying 20 to $40 a strip for Suboxone from a buddy of theirs for a year or more before they got in our program. And the thing was, is that those people were actually stable. Yes, they were getting Suboxone off the street. Yes, unfortunately, someone was diverting it to them, right? Mm -hmm. And clearly their doctor was not on top of their pill counts and things like that. But um, once they get into the program and they, uh, one of the beautiful things that happens is their insurance starts paying for it. <laughs> These tend to actually be, what's really fascinating is those patients actually tend to be the least likely to relapse in our program okay. because they've already, they've already experienced what, they already know what it's like to be more or less stable on Suboxone. Now, typically when they're getting that on the street, because it's so expensive, um, they're typically taking less than they actually need to be stable. So the diversion, you know, getting it off the street, is, it's not an ideal situation for people. So um, some, some MAT programs will deny people access to their program if they call them up and say, I've been getting Suboxone on the street for the last year. I really want to be part of a program. A lot of places will actually say, I'm sorry, but unless you get a doctor to actually refer you, um, uh, then, uh, okay, it looks like my my client has been sleeping off cold today, so we got a little bit more time. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so then that to me is like really offensive. That's just offensive. I'm in the, I'm in the business of helping people, 
right? I'm not in the business of putting up roadblocks for people. And if people are honest enough with me to say, hey, look, I've been getting Suboxone on the street for the last year, right? I'm like, well, come in our program. We're really going to accelerate your recovery. Um, so diversion, you know, one of the things that another thing that we do in our program is we always have people on um, what we consider to be the minimum dose that they need. Uh, our induction process is very thorough. So um, when people um, stop having withdrawal, clinical withdrawal in, in the setting of the, the induction, that's it, they're done. Like that's, that's their dose. So if that stops at one and a half, they're just at one and a half, right? And so um, some other doctors, and, I, you know, and everybody's free to run their practices the way they want to, but some other practices, what they do is they just simply start you out at three, which is the ceiling effect. There's no more effect past three. I feel like what happens in that is you're setting people up for diversion. Someone realizes, well, we only, only need one and they can sell two a day and they can pay their rent, right? So some um, diversion control policies are just simply logical, like keep someone on the minimal dose to keep them out of withdrawal and to manage their cravings and no more. That helps to tamp that diversion down because the person only has enough to work for them. That makes a lot of sense and that's really helpful. Yeah, thank you. Of course. <laughs> I know you're not you know, prescribing it yet, but um, can you talk a little bit about Supplicate? <clears throat> so Supplicate, is, it, it is a brand new thing. Um, some practitioners really embrace it. Um, so if you show up with a bad pill count or you show up with a dirty tox, right um they'll they'll basically do just come into their into your appointment and they'll say okay this is your option you're either in the program and you're getting supplicate or you're out of the program uh so and so supplicate is a time released 30-day time released um buprenorphine and naloxone so it's basically it's an injection it's a 30-day time release injection of suboxone it's the same company um, I have mixed feelings on this. First of all, it's a 30 day injection, which means that if something, if a person has an adverse reaction to it, they're stuck with it for 30 days. I don't personally feel comfortable with that. Second, the reports we seem to be getting from people, from patients, is that it's a little bit euphoric for the first week stable for two weeks, and then minor withdrawal for the fourth week. So from a clinical standpoint, the reason that we don't use Supplicate in our practice is that that's not considered stable. I've heard some clinics actually give some Suboxone those last few days because yes. it's day 26 or 28 it really starts to, to drop off. So they have to give some Suboxone up until they get their next shot. Right, and then, then you run into the challenge of is the insurance gonna pay for that? Right. Um, and so, you know, then you run the risk at the end of that cycle of a person just simply relapsing every single month. So, mm -hmm. and then of course there's the, um, the warning, the black box warning 
type warning on that that says, hey, you know, one of the potential side effects of this is death. And I, I don't really want to give somebody, have someone come into my clinic, get a shot and die. Right. Um, I also heard that uh, you are providing um, mats for people who are in our local jail, for people who are already on the, in your program if they go to jail. We haven't had uh, we have we have a, a pretty good relationship with um, with Kalkaska County Sheriff's Office. Um, we haven't had an opportunity to actually do that yet. Okay, but they're willing to do that. They're willing to do that. They've met with us. They're willing to do that. We just simply haven't had an opportunity to do that yet. In fact, um, but there have been patients of ours that had did um, short stints in other counties where they were given that. Okay. So some counties, Benzie County, I think, Leelanau County does that. Um, Grand Traverse does not. Um, so it's kind of a patchwork right now. And it's really up to uh, the jail administrators as to whether or not they want to want to do that. You know, um, Sheriff Whiteford's uh, opinion was basically if somebody is withdrawing in his jail, that's more risk than giving them uh, Suboxone. Right. <laughs> that's, that's awesome that things are changing because I know what year and a half or so ago, um, personal experience of someone detoxing on their floor. Yep. Um, they're suboxone. <laughs> so, which is- Right, not a good deal. Not a good deal, no. Mm -hmm. so that, that's great that things are changing. So. Yeah, they are. They're, it's county by county, but it's, uh, it is it is changing. In fact, um, uh, you mentioned Vivitrol earlier. Um, the Michigan uh, prison system has a Vivitrol program now, uh, where they um, it's it's not it's not a hundred percent effective in the sense that they do tend to miss some people. Um, but when you're when you've had a few years in prison and you're about to get out, um, like the week before you get out, they'll actually offer you a Vivitrol shot. Uh, because, you know, of course, that's one of the highest risks for fatal overdose. So um, that's really an awesome thing. And now that uh, one thing that's about to change at Life's Work Clinic is that my, my amazing wife, Mandy, uh, just is just finishing up her MA program. So she'll be a medical assistant and we'll be able to do blood draws and injections and, and different things like that. So we will have some, some new options. We're gonna get back on the Vivitrol uh, referral list uh, as well, because right now our practitioners are only contracted to come in the office, like, you know, Ron's in there like two days a month and Rachel's always by, uh, by video. And so Vivitrol just didn't work, you know, because if someone needs that and they get approved for that, they need that that day. Um, so having Mandy in the office as an MA, um, you know, registered and certified to do that uh, is really going to be a huge game, one of the huge game changers for us and the community. Right. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, does anybody else have any other questions? I do have, yes, I do have a couple of questions, meth related. Uh, my son has substance use disorder, um, Adam. Um, but I do hear, I just met some folks the other day too, um, out in Benzie and all three of them are recovering addicts. And I just want to know where this, these folks get the idea that you cannot overdose 
on meth. Do you have any insight on that? And why did they use that as a shield? Well, it's not like heroin. It's not like this. I can't overdose on meth. Is there any truth to that, Adam? Well, there's no truth to that. I mean, the bottom line is, is that the difference between medicine and poison is dose. Okay. True. Uh, so, um, and then of course, in the case of meth, meth is a series of chemical reactions in order to make it. Not only is it a series of, of pretty significant chemical reactions in order to produce it, but it sometimes cut. So, and I just want to throw this out. This is actually a great lead into the biggest issue facing, I believe, right, the whole drug using population in the United States outside of alcohol and, and marijuana. And that is cheap imported fentanyl from yep. China. Yep. China, I, I'm just a personal believer that China is actively waging war in the United States. And one of the ways that it's doing it is importing this really, really inexpensive fentanyl. And it has been the source of like three quarters of the opioid overdoses, you know, over the past several years. And you can see the graphs where um, in 2010, they reformulated OxyContin that was no longer desirable. Immediately you had a spike in overdose deaths from, uh, from heroin. And then by 2013, uh, China started importing the, uh, the fentanyl and the deaths overdoses went like this. Wow. So big issue. The thing about meth is it's also one of the drugs that's subject to being cut with this synthetic fentanyl. So the idea that you can't, if it was pure methamphetamine, right, which is kind of a misnomer, I use that in quotes, pure, right, um, <laughs> with, without an adulterant, uh, you know, cutting agent, um, it's, it's possible that it has a, a um, an overdose safety profile that's within acceptable levels for a lot of people. Um, certainly, uh, it's more common for heroin to be cut with fentanyl and you not know it than meth cut with fentanyl, then you don't know it, or cocaine uh, and cut with fentanyl and you don't know it. But it happens and it happens more often than, than, than the general public realizes. So the safety profile of any drug that you're getting from the street opioids or heroin even opioid tablets now you've heard about this yeah. they're being stamped with fentanyl made with fentanyl um uh meth cocaine all of these drugs now potentially are uh um uh you know cut with with a very potent opioid um and and so the safety profile of meth if you will, safety profile, is kind of a misnomer to use in a, in a drug like that, that's all chemicals. Um, it, uh, it, the safety profile definitely goes down with the potential of being cut with fentanyl. It does, so. however, cause heart attacks, stroke, um, what else? It can cause um, seizures. Yeah, irregular heartbeats, yeah. et cetera. I mean, it's a stimulant. Yeah, so overuse of it can definitely cause, you could have death from a heart attack or stroke. Yes, you know, extreme weight loss, eating disorders, things like that. Um, you know, on top of the fact that um, with meth, 
um, you know, one of the things that that people do is they they inject it and then they don't really get high until they until they throw up, right? So you, you think it's true? Why Many is people... this? Because that would make sense between the two of these. She's always sick and not feeling well and throwing up. Yeah, mm. right. Because meth meth can make you throw up. So um, and that can have all kinds of secondary effects as well. <laughs> Like uh, you know, uh, esophageal um, you know disintegration, uh, bad oh, yeah. teeth, things like that. Another th problem with meth is that it it tends to um, it tends to the chemicals in it tend to replace calcium. I've heard this. So brittle bones, yeah. brittle teeth, um, you know, uh, bad, really bad, you know, uh, skin. Um, it it can be really uh, brutal on the body that way. So it's it's not it's not a safe drug by any by any stretch of the imagination. It's a it's a, it's a chemical concoction that uh, um, you know was dreamt up in 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 a lab. But it's also inexpensive, and people like that about it. Especially the stuff that's coming in from Mexico, the southern border. Yeah. They don't make it as much anymore because it's actually so cheap to buy it and you get less time if you get caught with it than you do manufacturing it. So in manufacturing it can be incredibly toxic to the environment. Um, entire, you know, homes where you know meth labs have been for for you know in use for a long time, uh, you know, often, you know, literally have to be stripped down to the to the studs, you know, and you have to start over. So but my phone is about to die, so <laughs> it just made that really, really sad sound. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for joining us. And like I said, this will be placed on our Facebook page. Uh, portions of it, if not all of it, would be put can be put on um, Up North Prevention's uh, YouTube page. Um, so and we'll, we'll put it out there. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for that was, yeah, super informative. Thank you. Yep. And we will see you soon. All right. Take care.